You are listening to the Boss Business of Surgery Series Podcast, Episode 12. Today, I talk with Dr. Sunny Smith. She is a family practice physician and founder of Empowering Women Physicians. She also has supported the Henrietta Lacks Foundation, which many people are not aware. Henrietta Lacks was a black woman who lived in the 1950s. Her cervical cancer cells had been used to power significant amounts of medical research. However, it was against her will. And Dr. Smith is working with others to correct the social injustice that many people are not even aware has occurred. She and fellow physicians have already raised over $270,000 for the Henrietta Lacks family to provide funds for their education. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. All right, welcome to the show. And I'm so excited to have a special guest on here. This is Dr. Sunny Smith. If you do not know who she is, you've been living under a rock. But anyway, uh, let me, you actually may not know who she is. She is basically the leader of the physician coaching movement. And we are under this huge coaching revolution. And so I thought this episode, Rise of the Physician Coach, is a really relevant uh, topic to cover because coaching has been so critical in my current journey. And uh, I wanted to bring the premier leader um, of the physician coaching movement, uh, Dr. Sunny Smith. So Dr. Smith, tell us a little bit about how you became a physician coach. Okay, first of all, you are the kindest human ever. (laughs) Thank you for saying all those words. It's much, much appreciated. And I want to acknowledge it is, as you said, a movement. So, you know, you can have leaders in a movement, there are always many, um, but the movement is made up of all of the people. And the revolution, I think the words that you use, you know, a coach always pays attention to the words that people use because they are so meaningful. And I do think there's a bit of a revolution that is very timely and pertinent right now in the last couple of years in particular. But my story, um, because our stories most often start with some kind of pain point or some, you know, like, why does come, someone come in for surgery? <laughs> why do they show up in the hospital? Why do they show up for anything, right? Is There's always usually some inciting factor. And so for me, I was an academic family physician, uh, director of a free clinic my entire career, um, and medical student advisor and all that stuff always overworking just like everybody does and not enough time off and all those things always research papers do or this and that do a hundred charts behind. And I went um, on vacation on a much awaited and desired vacation with my husband on mother's day in 2017, which is now actually almost five years ago. And I fell off a bicycle in Tahiti. People who know me kind of know this story because that is what ended up leading me to life coaching. And the reason that it led me to life coaching is because I fell on my face and I went over the handlebars. So your trauma surgeons will kind of know what happened to me. (laughs) And, um, you know, I lost consciousness. I was a little bit, um, you know, foggy in my brain for a while after that, my arms were broken. Um, my face was broken and I couldn't feed myself, care for myself. I also got pots, so I couldn't even sit up at all where I got tachycardia. So no standing, no bathing alone, no nothing. And I just had to basically lay flat on my back for months. 
And um, someone on PMG, which is Physician Moms Group, um, had recommended that I listen to podcasts because I couldn't hold a book and I wasn't allowed to watch TV because of my head injury. So what's a girl to do once I was alert enough for long enough to um, want to do something with my attention? So I didn't even know at that point, because as I said, it was about five years ago that there was a podcast app on my phone, but it turned out there was. (laughs) And um, so they had recommended a podcast called The Life Coach School. And so I started at number one, the first episode. And over the course of months, while I was laying there flat, eventually did some rehab with PT at home and all those things. By the time I was ready to go back to work to do the white coat ceremony and say their names and, you know, try and kind of be there for the, the big beginning of the year, um, I had listened to like 200 something episodes. And I, what they were teaching there which is why I continued listening and listening and listening is that there are circumstances that you can't control in the universe and life, whatever those things are, but you can control your perspective on those things and how you want to show up, given that those things are true in the world. Like I could, because before I listened to that for the bike accident, I was like, why did I get on the bike? Why did I get on the bike? Husband who's so much more athletic than me. Like he knew I shouldn't have been on that bike so much resistance and none of that mental stuff. I was thinking all day, every day while I was suffering, right. And in pain and can't do anything was just making more pain for myself. And so once I started thinking, oh my gosh, okay, my arms are broken. And now what? Like, maybe this is happening for me. I started thinking maybe I needed to slow down. I never, ever, ever would have slowed down ever, much like every single one of your listeners ever. The only thing that slows us down is an absolute physical injury where we cannot go in, right? Because people go in and get IVs. We go in with migraines. We go in with pilo. We like, we just go in. And so it basically had to be something this severe to make me actually take the time off. Um, and so I just started sort of. Um, reflecting on life and my journey and my place in it and how I thought everything I was doing was so critical. Turns out every single thing I did was done by someone else, whether it was taking my kid to preschool, doing the grades, right? Filling out the evaluations, writing the letters of rec, every single thing. So that was just so fascinating because anyone who's a medical educator knows that, you know, after May comes June, July, August, it's like, that's all the sub eyes. And when people need to be evaluated and they need their letters and there's just a lot that happens at that time. And as I said, like going into the launch of the fall, those are just, you think the world can't go on without you and it does. So that's what led me into it. So I went back in the fall and then um, I signed up for a coaching program that winter and then they offered coach training. And I was the, I knew there was one physician coach. Her name's Katrina Ubell. She was kind of, one of the first in, I would say, I mean, obviously there's been coaches back, I mean, people doing this kind of work since ancient Buddhism and, you know, all ancient religions, you know, there you can find things in the Bible that are the kinds of things we say now, ask and you shall receive type things. Um, but she spoke it in a language I can hear, right? After I listened to Life Coach School, I listened to her stuff and she spoke about things I could understand. And, and I thought, if a pediatrician could do this and she wasn't crazy, maybe I wasn't crazy. And so I had to tell my husband that, right? And anyway, this has been a long story introduction. I won't make all the stories this length, but that is the- No relevant though. It kind of starts out, I think generally, any physician who's a coach, basically their journey is I had some kind of tragedy and then I got better and these tools really helped me. 
And then somehow I learned that there were other people doing it that were physicians and I wasn't crazy. And so that is like, there was one person I knew. And then when I showed up for training, I was interviewing to be the associate dean of student affairs and um, admissions at the same time as I was doing my life coach training from the same place because <laughs> we were in Dallas there and we did the um, interview by Zoom before people were all over Zoom. So I was really like, oh my gosh, am I at a crossroads? Like, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? Having no idea on earth how I would ever make life, integrate life coaching into my life. And there were four other doctors there. And I was like, what? Did you tell anyone you're here? They're like, no. I'm like, me either. <laughs> I was going to a meeting. I mean, I just, I put it in vacation, right? But I'm like, it's a meeting. People are like, where are you going? I'm like, a meeting in Dallas, the meeting. Right. And so like, that's how sort of our feeling was shame regarding it or embarrassment, or, you know, you just didn't want to tell people at your work, certainly, or your family, what you were up to. And now what's interesting, because that was in May, 2018, it's only four years later and the curve, you know, if there was like less than 10 of us at that time, now there's hundreds of us over just the last years. So I think what we find is that it's very it's evidence-based, it's helpful, it's pragmatic, you can apply it in your life and get results right away. So there's a reason I think that um, it's a revolution. It also gets you to take back your power. I started wearing a little bracelet that said she believed she could, so she did. And I just look like unstoppable. I'm like, you can't stop me now because my beliefs matter. And if I believe I can, I will. <laughs> right? So it's like you come, you get back your power because I think in medicine, so many of us have learned helplessness. We have gone through a training system that told us we had no control for years and years and years and years. And so then when we get out as attendings, like we think we're done with the 80 hour work week. <laughs> and then you're like, wait, there's no restrictions on how much I can work. Hmm, this doesn't seem fair. Um, and just, you know, all these things, well, you have to sign up for this. You have to sign up for that. If you want to sign up at this hospital, you have to do that. And so we all just take it, you know, even though. It doesn't, it's not what we wanted. It's not where we wanted. We would rather be in some position that maybe doesn't have, you know, X, Y, Z types of things that people have to sign up for, but we think there's no options. And so we just keep going. Like, I think a lot of people too are sort of around, like I'm 47, I just turned, but so I was going through this in my forties, this evolvement is like we get to the middle of our lives and our careers have are well established right I was a full professor well I'm like where where are we going like what ladder have I what wall have I put my ladder up against right like I got to the top and you know I, I think we just get like this reframing if I really am in charge what would I create and so that becomes the question is like okay this is your one life what do you want it to look like you're like, no one ever asked me that. They told me to show up at this place at this time. It was four in the morning, right? And see this many patients on this schedule. And so to have permission to give yourself a tiny bit of space and in that space, think, what would I like to create? And then to start to dare to dream to make that happen. And for some people, as you know, it starts with like, I'd like Friday afternoons off. That would be like a miracle. And then they go make it happen. And then, you know, once you learn that you can actually do that, then whatever the things are that you start wanting in your life, they start becoming more and more real. 
Yeah, absolutely true. And there's so many aspects of your story that I think are really relevant. You know, telling us the story from the beginning is really helpful to understand just because, you know, right now with hundreds of physician coaches around, we lose the appreciation for how hard it was to get started. Exactly what you said of people don't understand what a physician coach is. You know, there's that suspicion. And then I don't know yes. doing this. And, yeah. You know, and then they think you're like <laughs> selling like one of those essential oils or MLM <laughs> or something. You're like, this is an evidence-based intervention from JAMA, like from the leading physician wellness experts, right? Like take Shanifel, Lottie Derby, like this is not essential oil and this is not an MLM and this is not shady. And now what's so funny is like to look back and even think that I wasn't sure if this was acceptable. And now I'm like, I literally think every physician deserves a coach. Cause now what I know, you know, I was on the committee that was interviewing the high level big D deans at that point. And I, they would come in for interviews and we'd be like, what are your strengths? And they'd say, well, I have a coach and they work with me on da da da. And I'm like looking around the room because no one knew I was a certified coach. I'm like, how are people talking about coaches openly at this level in this room? So then I started learning that people at those elite levels have coaches in medicine, MDs or the CEOs, but the, the C-suite, you know, business people have known this for a long time. And you know, physicians, I think, many think, and there's articles in the New England Journal that say, you know, we are the most valuable resource in healthcare and we do not have support, right? Like for our decisions, for our, whatever we're going through, if we want to become leaders, someone to help us be a better leader and to get those positions and to move our organizations forward, or if we're just kind of suffering and need help to be like, no, it's okay for you to change something, something, whatever that is. And so I, I really believe, and the last physician wellness conference that I went to a national conference put on by the AMA in Stanford and Mayo, the last talk, the very last talk was, um, I believe it was by Mickey Trockle where he, his whole closing thing was every physician needs a coach. And I was like, I just can't even, I was presenting there, but I wasn't presenting as a coach, even though I was a coach. Um, so I just thought that was, and he used sports analogies. So for a lot of men, it tends to go over sort of like, I mean, every, we just had the Super Bowl while we were recording this yesterday. Would anybody be there without a coach? Like in, in junior high, you have to have a coach, right? And you have to have a kind of elite coach. And then you go to high school and you get a great coach. You go to college, you get a great coach. Why are the physicians out there? And it's a different type of coach, but um, then people say things about physician coaches or coaches in general, like, are they just poorly trained therapists, right? Or are they trying to do psychiatry? And first of all, I did way more psychiatry in primary care, not that I can do psychiatry, right? I didn't do a residency in psychiatry, but most mental health is cared for by a primary care doctor in the United States and in many places. And then we refer people on when we need them. Um, so I think just like the coach analogy in terms of the athlete, they need a PT, they need a family med sports doc, they need an orthopod, right? And they need their coach and they're all different roles. And so I think physician coaching is sort of like, that is the bare minimum that every physician deserves and needs. And I believe institutions should fund for them. And I believe they should be able to choose who they want, where they want, because they might feel safer with someone outside their institution. Um, and then in addition, of course, there's people who might need therapy, who might need psychiatry, and certainly a physician coach not only gets other physicians the most because there's some culture 
some indoctrination, some norms, some experiences that we go through that are relatively universal and just are better understood by someone who went through it. And um, that all of us who are physicians know when to elevate care, right? So like, we're just immersed in this all the time. So I think it's like a win, win, win. There's a financial, there's an article that talks about the um, business case for physician wellness, because of course, we're all trying to argue the moral case for physician wellness. Like this isn't right, right? More than half of us are burned out. And like within three months of starting internship, 20% are suicidal and multi-site randomized controlled trials. Like, how is that okay? It's not. One in five of us is entertaining not being alive rather than continuing an internship, right? Like it's, there are some circumstances, right? These situational circumstances that um, can create distress. So it, I think it also would empower us to speak up against the things that, because we know best what we need changed, right? And they always talk about in, when we're trying to make the healthcare system better, like we've got a long way to go, no doubt. The American healthcare system is an accident of history every single step of the way over the past decades. Like no one would design the system that we have to be the way it is. But in the undoing, I mean, what we what we do, they, they say, you know, is like, we ask people, what's the pebble in your shoe in physician wellness? This is not really necessary coaching concept, but, and then you ask the local people, like for you, wherever your work, you work in your exact clinic, in your exact city, in your exact organization. And it would be different for someone who works in the ER or the ICU, right? Because they work differently than you do a little bit. And then we say, okay, let's remove that pebble. What's the biggest thing? We're going to remove it, the thing in your shoe. And then we also have to move the boulder, but we're not going to wait till we move the boulder right? To take the pebble out of your shoe, because that would be ridiculous because that boulder's not going anywhere anytime soon. So we need to move the big things in healthcare, like absolutely hundred percent. So I don't want people to think this is like mindfulness and nothing, there's nothing wrong with mindfulness at all, but like, it's not a yoga class. It's not an online, you know, program. You have to click through on the weekend while your kids need your attention. It's um, really someone to walk alongside you and teach you, you have more power in you than you could ever imagine. And you really can do anything you want because physicians, and I work particularly with women physicians, like if you think of women in history on the planet, we are more educated, more financially empowered, more, I mean, even people who have debt because they don't believe that, but we have the ability to have our own money, to have our own houses, to have an education where actually our brains work really, really well, or we wouldn't have become who we are, right? So we just have so much power and we are so valuable and we are treated as if we're replaceable, but we are not. Even if people tell you, you are, you are not, that is not true. So we just want people to see themselves the way that others see them, right? It's like, we never see ourselves as, as powerful and as influential and as, even just worthy or intelligent or caring or exceptional as others see us, right? All you have to do is like walk into a party and they'll be like, ooh, you're a doctor? <laughs> yeah, everyone I know is a doctor. You forget that that's a big deal, right? But so anyway, even in our institutions and anywhere in your life, in your marriage, if people are married, in their relationships with their children, like there's these kind, compassionate ways to interact with yourself and others um, that you know very well. Yeah, you know, I think the biggest thing uh, when it comes to the surgeons specifically and coaching is that, uh, you know, we're always taught 
like circumstance, like problem, like complication. Let's just come up with that. You know, Mm -hmm. we are, we are results, action and results driven. Right. Um, Right. And so we go along all this time and, you know, like how, like, why does this surgeon have the same complication and, you know, has, they can have the same result too, because he actually like complication, I'm going to read about it and I'm going to be smarter for the next case. And this Mm -hmm. surgeon does the exact same thing, but they're burned out. And one Mm -hmm. seems like doing okay. And this other one is clearly suffering and Mm -hmm. really um, recognizing that there's all these thoughts and emotions that are underlying everything, um, that it's the inner dialogue that we're just not tuned into hearing. It's like, and I think that's what mm-hmm. coaching to me is, is just tuning into that radio frequency that we're just mm-hmm. not listening to because we are right. so action results driven that, yes. and then, then when people start dialing into like, well, of course you're burned out. You think that everything's terrible. <laughs> It's like we we don't even feel, right? Like it's like we don't feel to go to the bathroom, to get hungry, to do all those things as surgeons, right? You don't really get to feel. You kind of have to tune out your body. And so you action result, action result, action result. And then once you can slow down enough to feel for a lot of times for all, it's because you're feeling so terrible that that's when it actually comes on your radar. And then you could still go like like analogy of driving with your engine light on, right? But we're like, I've still got 500 more miles in me. And then you get that 500 miles. You're like, I can still keep going, right? Like none of us is actually going to pull over and get the oil changed and do like, as a, I don't know why we have all these sports analogies, but like, like a NASCAR, come on, you can get off before your tires are like off and have a little tune up and then get back when you're fresh and good to go, right? But no, we don't do that in medicine. And so when people, you know, aren't taught, to pay attention to how they're feeling. They're not gonna be thinking about what they're thinking either. There's thinking, which we all do and which many creatures can do, but then there's thinking about your thinking, which is the metacognition, which only humans can do. And so that's a very big blessing and a very big curse as well, because it depends on what you think about what you're thinking. So I think getting physicians getting in touch with what they feel and then what I tend to do myself, and I do this with people, clients all the time, is like, how are you feeling? And people are always like, fine. I'm like, no, really, really give it some other word, you know? And then people would be like sad, exhausted, you know, whatever the thing is. And some people will say excited if something good just happened. And then we say, why? Right. And then you're finding out what they're thinking. And as you said, it could be the same exact circumstance because someone could be like, I'm feeling okay because, you know, I had this complication and someone else could be like, I'm devastated because also in terms of the biology, right? It's, it's neurology and it's neuroanatomy and it's people's wiring and the habits, just like it's super easy to walk, right? Our brains always have to be efficient because our brains take up the most calories in our whole body. So they're always looking for like an easy route, just like when you drive home, right? It's like, oh, we just turn right, turn left. Like we don't even think about which corner we turn at. And our brains are doing that with the, if we're used to beating ourselves up when we have complications or when anything, right? Like if even women are so much worse, right? Like someone bumps into us and we literally say, sorry, <laughs> what are you talking? that big, huge person just came and bumped into you, right? Or someone else spills something and we're like, sorry, like that's, you can imagine that's our external things that people can see and hear and measure what, what does the internal look like when we do something that we perceive as wrong? And like, there are things we could say to ourselves, which is like, every surgeon has complications. Every, it is universal. 
there are no surgeons without complications. There are, you can't be in the hospital without complications, right? Patients have complications. So these are things we can say that are true that feels so much better than I can't believe I did that. And then the whole like swearing and, you know, we all go to the chart and look 5,000 times. And there's something that can be helpful about going back to the chart. Like, what did I miss if you're there to learn? But what did I miss if you're there to berate yourself and look for evidence that you should have known and that, you know, you're no good and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I think, yeah, what making what we go through in medical training as sort of, and in medical practice, sort of as factual as possible and seeing what happens in the surgery or as the result or what happens to your patients after is like patient had a complication and you could name whatever that is. It could be like, I'm learning every, cause honestly, I'm sure you guys find this, but in my specialty, I'm family medicine. Um, the things that I learn when my patients have a significant complication, I'm so much better. Like that actually makes us better in the long run. And we're so much more because of, again, the way our brain works, we have heightened emotional times that deeply embed memories in the brain. And so like, that's why we all know where we were on 9-11, right? Because it's so emotional. That's why we often remember our first um, anatomy cadaver. It's, it's just like emotion is tied to it and makes big memories. And so we can think and think the patient and ourselves for holding space, feeling like this is an emotional memory. I'm going to remember this and I'm going to take better care of people in the future because of this. So you don't want it to be like icing or, you know, on trash or lipstick on a pig or whatever. You have to really believe it and you have to work on believing it. You know, like maybe this could have happened to another surgeon, right? whatever, any of those things. And so anyway, just again, often I think, how am I feeling is really an entry point. I, I find to a lot of people, how am I feeling? And really just like sitting until they can come up with an answer for that and then say, why? And, and you know, a lot of times the feelings that we initially come up with, happy, sad, angry, I'm not sure. That's all I have. I know, I know. <laughs> and so we can work that way, right? Where we go, how are you feeling? And then what are you thinking? Da, da, da. And then, but then there's also the other way, which is like, what do you want to be feeling? Right. Well, I want to feel freedom. You're like, okay, what would help you with that? Or what, you know, because you can also use it the other way, which is that you can create your feelings more on purpose. You can create your results more on purpose. You can influence the world around you more on purpose if you believe you can. Can we create everything on day one? No. You know, like, could I have been in the Super Bowl? I doubt it. But so there's a lot of results that would be very, very challenging. And some of them will take a very long time, but we can make a difference, whether it's in our personal life and our professional life and our families. And the thing is, once you start believing you make a difference, everyone around you can't help but see that. And, you know, anyone who's been through a coaching program knows that the ripple effect of one physician being coached is like so many nurses and MAs. But even more importantly, really, in my opinion, is like the family, the friends, the colleagues, because we're all setting precedents for each other. So like if our kids see that you have to sacrifice yourself for others indefinitely, and then you come home and all you do is sleep and then you go back, they're like, well, this is what it means to be a doctor, or this is what it means to be a grown up, right? And so when you can talk to them about what you're doing and what you're thinking and what they're going through and it's not just touchy feely, right? It's like we become the embodied examples of what we value 
in the world. And so if that is true for our kids, for our families, for our friends, for our colleagues, it's like, would you want the med student underneath you to do what you're doing right now, you know, 20 years from now? And if the answer is, I wouldn't want this for her 20 years from now, then maybe stop doing it or find a way, right? Because like I'll hear from, and I'm not advocating everybody go part-time at all. Obviously everyone has to go internally and find their own North Star and getting closer to that. Um, But I've had many people come into my program where they're like, there was one woman, right? I was in a group of 50 guys and, you know, certain specialties are like almost all men, right? And there was one woman and a few number of women, one of them went 80% time. (gasps) And then she came in and was like, and then I realized I could go part-time. So be careful because it's like a wave of empowered physicians spreading all over the country, US and Canada, and I'm sure all over the world, but it's just once someone does it, it's like, this is an interesting one too, honestly, is like maternity leave is one where people are like, oh, you have to come back right away, or you have to come back in six weeks, or, you know, you don't get paid because there's still overhead and various things. And the thing is, even if one woman goes through it two or three times, like by the time she's on her third pregnancy, or by the time there's another woman in the office, she's like, this is not fair, right? Mm -hmm. The guys can't have the babies. So it's not fair that they make us make up all our call and do all this extra stuff. And, you know, and we still didn't get paid for the six weeks. And why was it only six weeks? Like I got a C-section and I really needed longer. So anyway, just thinking of what, I think that construct, when you think of, am I showing up in the way that I would want the people coming behind me to, it's often like, it could like bring you to tears, you know? And when we see this too, I remember when I was our associate program director, uh, we would do the interviews for residents coming in. And of course, we're not allowed to ask as, as appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. I would just tell them, by the way, I have two children. Everything's <laughs> fine. I'm an excellent surgeon. My family yes. could pick me out of a lineup. I just want you to know. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Because <laughs> that is a true concern, right? There's all these misconceptions. And so your presence your existence, just sitting in that chair mm-hmm. and saying that word, it, it means something to them, right? Yes. And so I feel the more we have people like that, the better it is for everybody. And it's interesting that the biggest difference that I saw in what we typically get, which is advice, you know, your action line coaching and versus the, the, the coaching that we do is, um, and I realized the difference in some of these things, a lot of times we tell people what to do. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, in that instance of those interviews is I wasn't telling them what to do. I was offering them an alternative thought, you know, mm-hmm. like you can still be a good surgeon and do this. And, and I think that's what is most impactful uh, looking backwards. The things that I have found that are most impactful and doing it, not even realizing it was offering people thoughts that they could then decide what to do with versus right. just telling them what to do is, is a big yeah. difference, I think. Yeah, exactly. Because if it's not offered to you and you haven't seen it, right? Like, where are you going to come up with these thoughts on your own? And so when, you know, culture is a lot of things, but includes thoughts that have been offered to us that we just hear so often that we just internalize these beliefs and truths. And so we can offer people new different kinds of thoughts. And we can also say, what do you think? Right. And I think that that is some of the wisdom because what we always do, I was being coached earlier today and they're like, what do you think? I'm like, I don't know. And of course that just blocks everything, right? You know, cause when people are say burnt out or whether they're, 
you know, if they don't know what they're going to do, if they have two kids and they're moving to another town, what are you, how are you going to get a nanny? Like it's so overwhelming, all of the things, whatever the, your circumstances are, when you don't, when you allow yourself to believe the thought that you don't know, which is what our brain offers us all the time, it's just paralyzing. And so then your coach is like, but I'm sure you have some idea. <laughs> what would you think, right? What would you think if you did know, if you had to take one step, one tiny step so they can make things less overwhelming by helping someone come up with their own step. And when you teach someone what actions to take, which can be really helpful, obviously a lot, like to become a surgeon, someone had to show you where to cut, what to cut, where to bovie, all the things, right? How to stitch. Um, but if you offer someone a lot of do this, do that, sometimes they just have resistance, right? They don't believe you. They're like, that doesn't work for me. You know, they're not necessarily a role model you want in your life. And so I think that's part of the magic of coaching is it brings out, it validates everything that a human being is feeling because we were designed to feel feelings and anything you're feeling is fine, right? And then we get to ask them their thoughts. And even I've noticed my own husband does this to me. He thinks he's like tricking me a little bit when he's like... <laughs> well, what do you think? Because he'll offer me some solutions first is usually where it comes from. So he's like, what about this? What about this? I'm like, no, no, no. And then I could see him pause. He's like, what do you think? <laughs> and he's doing like in this way where he knows that that's gonna make me buy in more and make me more likely to do whatever the thing is, you know, that I don't want to do <laughs> because I chose it, right? And when we choose, that's one thing that, um, positions that really feel they're missing, as you know, is agency and autonomy. And so when we choose, we feel that we have autonomy. Choose something in your schedule. Choose something about your life. And so that's the thing about teach, reteaching people, the unlearning of the um, sort of learned helplessness, the unlearning of that is, well, what do you want to choose? And sometimes it can be paralyzing, but sometimes just one little choice. And then they come up with, they start saying those things, you know? And I think that, you know, the, uh, do you feel like the pandemic is what led to this um, physician revolution or physician coach revolution? Or do you think it was something else? Was it a long time coming? It's a good question. There certainly were physician coaches before then. And I went to my first AAFP, which is American Academy of Family Physicians wellness meeting. It was the very first one. And it was right before the pandemic. It was right before well, not right before, it was like a year, two, 2018. So year and a half before. Um, and, but that was the time where it was, I mean, physician wellness hasn't been well for a long time, right? <laughs> the system was developed, you know, at least a hundred years ago. And there was the Flexner report, all the med schools got the same and standardized. And then there was making residents and residencies because they actually lived in the hospital for an undetermined period of time. They were basically all men, no one had children. They stayed there as long as they needed to and then they got to leave and they all had stay at home wives and they got to work as much as they needed. But if you think about the hospitals back then, right? Like they didn't have MRI machines. They didn't have the ICUs we have. They didn't, so the level of care was very different. But anyway, getting back to the modern day when we're talking about the, the sort of epidemic of physician distress, was had been on the rise for a significant period of time and was getting quite urgent before the pandemic. And so in 2018, I saw physician coaches at a national AAFP meeting and there was two of them and they were both dudes. And I went up to both of them afterwards because I was on my way to coach training. And 
you know, it was far and few between, but it was an issue. It was an issue. And then, so we were speaking out. We had actually, I was part of a documentary that's on Amazon now that's called Do No Harm. And we were speaking out against physician distress and suicide and mental health issues and all of that well before. But I think what happened is it was, I don't know what analogy to use, right? But it was just, it was bad before and then it got horrible, right? Like it got really, really bad. It's like, you cannot look away anymore. This is, especially when the pandemic had first started and physicians were out of work, like didn't have income. And so no matter your specialty, almost across the board, unless you were in New York City, right? Everybody was told to stay home. And so like, say you're a GI doctor, right? Like, or I'm sure many of your surgeons, because we had surgeons in our program, all elective cases, Mm -hmm. which was basically everything, you had to stay home. And so physicians were financially distressed. And then they were also, when they were called to go in, incredibly distressed with the unknown. And so I think it was, I, I would choose to think that these last two years, now become an incredible opportunity, right? Because it got so bad. It's like, if you have a festering abscess or something like, oh, when it's kind of like a little red and uncomfortable, it's fine. But like, once it really is a significant issue, you're like, I gotta go in, right? And so I, like the Surgeon General is talking about physician wellness now as a national agenda and how can we reimburse differently so that physicians aren't in the distress that they're in and actually trying to come up with new solutions for, I mean, who knows if they're just going to be small things like paying for televisits or like we used to think you couldn't have a televisit. Do you even remember telemedicine? We, people were like, you can't, it's going to take years. We could never do that. And so many people I knew were working on that behind the scenes and like supposed to be in charge of that. And then all of a sudden overnight within a week where there's a will, there's a way. And so that makes me think like, you're just choosing to see us as disposable because when you needed it for your bottom line, you sure made it happen right away, right? Right, right away. And so what is that for the rest of medicine and how do we um, bring the unprecedented distress to light? And you know, there's many people working on that movement in many different ways and grants and speakers and I think though, there's just so much more to do. I think, and I don't have a lot of belief in, because probably I was a medical educator, but in the, in the younger generation that I just think there's a lot that we've been tolerating for a long time that people are starting to see is not really tolerable or not really necessary even. And I think that um, someone early on called the pandemic, the great pause. And, you know, Mm. I think that that was probably the key is that we did have an opportunity to stop for a minute. It's so easy to get stuck in the automatic uh, aspect of just kind of be swept along the tide. Um, But I think by pausing and stopping and taking a look around um, and to be isolated a bit um, to where a lot of reflection was inward. um, And then we were able to see, our surroundings uh, a little bit differently. And, you know, for, for me, I, I, that certainly seemed to escalate. It, it was, I'm not sure if it was the flame, but it was certainly the accelerant to the flame of right. the uh, physician coaching revolution. Um, right. Now, so now that someone does believe that they need a coach, um, but, you know, now you see many around. Yeah. 
what advice do you give to someone about like, where do I start? How do I find it? How does this work? <laughs> what do I That's get the a wrong really book? good question. You know, it's interesting because I mean, I feel like I have a good finger on the pulse of the physician coaches who trained where we trained and there's hundreds of them. Um, I'm sure there are many amazing coaches elsewhere too. And in your city, wherever they are, um, I would say just like any physician, how would you find a good surgeon, right? Like you would go with someone with a good reputation, with a good history, um, who you got along with and you trusted their skill and you felt safe with. So some of those parallels are still there, right? Um, uh, like I personally feel like people who trained where we did, which is the life coach school, um, you know, as an educator, I could see all the adult medical education practices that we use at the medical school like having to do one-on-ones like we do in the OSCE and the GOSCE, you know, and having to be videotaped and evaluated by a teacher, that's the same. And like doing small group learning, that's the same. And having lectures like on video or real life, that's the same. And so I, I felt like um, there was some actual standardization, which I think is important um, and that everybody uses the same structure, I think in their own way, but is important. Um, because you see ads where like, supposedly you could take something online and I wouldn't necessarily want that. Right. I would want someone who had sort of gone through a program and learned how to do this well and had experience. And so if they went through the ICF, they would have an accreditation that would be like an ACC or a PCC or an MCC with a number of hours that they've worked with people. For instance, our program, we've worked with people, you know, I run a large collaborative, um, coaching program because I, I really do think every physician needs a coach. And so I'm not, most coaches work one-on-one -on -one and my program is there's me as the CEO of the company. And I do coach as you know, um, but I have usually 20 something coaches who are physicians who are paid a physician salary or rate mm -hmm. to coach other physicians underneath me, because I think it's really important that we don't see that it's just one person, just like if one pediatrician was out you'd be okay to see the other pediatrician in the office, but you'd have one main pediatrician. And you'd know that the pediatricians were all gonna follow sort of a similar you know, practice guideline. So I would say, I, I trust the physicians who coach where we do. I would, some people, I think it's very interesting. You know, I'm, I'm hesitating on this is just because some people, what I don't like to see, because think of like, if you're going to go see a psychiatrist or therapist or PT or whatever, like people come to the online space and because it's done by Zoom, people are like, and they'll even ask me, like, I run a $3 million company. <laughs> I'm a CEO and people email me and they're like, can I have a free consult? I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. No. <laughs> and like, what are they going to come to the surgeon and say, can I have a free consult? Like respect the physician coach as a physician and a peer and a colleague. And so what I don't like to see um, is someone who goes coach shopping, for instance, and goes to like, has one-on-one -on -one consults with like five or 10 people. I'm like, you're just going to be confused at the end. So we don't want to do that. We just want to, I perceive just like when I would go get mental health therapy, I would start by starting. And so I would look at the credentials. I'd look at the reputation. I'd look at what I'd heard from anybody. If there's a website, of course, all of us like Google our doctors these days, right? So anything you can see, if it seems like it resonates and is good fit for you, go have a real visit and talk to them. Yeah. And then I would stay. And I've been to, for instance, psychiatrists where I was like, I don't think I'm coming back, <laughs> but I still had a real visit and I paid them and I was assessed and evaluated. And then I just move on. 
So um, in our program, I'll say also, like I was really nervous just in terms of like if people are nervous to go to a coach because they're like, oh, you don't know if some are terrible, but like, why would they be terrible? You never say that about an internist. You're like, I hope they're not terrible. You just figure if they're licensed to practicing, we're not licensed, right? Where there's no licensing body as coaches, but we all are licensed as physicians. So there is a standard that is very, very high. Yeah, if I could, sorry to interrupt, but um, I think a lot of people may not be familiar with your program. And so me having gone through your program back in the fall, um, I just wanted to, I'll give you my perspective and the the program just as, you know, having gone through. Oh, that would be great. Yes. And so- (laughs) You know, I think if someone is, is not sure about a coach, I absolutely agree with you. A, a couple points to make is that you don't have to be certified to be a life coach. You know, you could be, you could declare it right now. Um, but going towards reputation and, you know, some of these bigger things are obviously the, the biggest thing. If you're not sure, then join your program. That's the Empowering Women Physicians program. And I'm just going to go ahead and pitch it. And this is why, um, you know, that for one thing, uh, it is the most comprehensive uh, kind of program. You're going to get a lot of different varieties of different things. You're going to get the group coaching. You're going to get the one-on-one coaching. And you're going to start to see all in one place what fits with you. Um, because right. people are much more comfortable in a group coaching setting. Right. Um, and that's, you know, I kind of describe this as like, you know, this is like observing. This is like med school. This is like, I'm going to get here the group and I don't have to stand out. I don't have to raise my hand if I don't want to, but I could maybe get the lesson and maybe, maybe I'll move to the front of the class and raise my hand later. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. one-on-one coaching um, can be especially jarring if someone's not used to it. Because Mm -hmm. the whole premise of coaching is to just drop the idea that you have to be someone. I mean, what's different between a coach and a friend or a family member is that you have this relationship you're trying to preserve and you don't want to say all the ugly things that are on your mind and we all have them. You know, Mm -hmm. the coach is to say, this is a safe spot. You just tell me all the things and we're just going to sort through it and we're going to figure it out. Um, Yeah. If someone's not used to that, it, it would make sense. Like if they try one call with someone um, and it doesn't work, I would not discourage them from it. No, the wrong person, the wrong time, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but anyway, the reason I like your program is that it does lots of, lots of different kinds of, of things. You know, you could do the group sessions. You could hear more, um, you know, uh, having the special guests, which are have been absolutely phenomenal. Having the Martha Beck, you know, Oprah's coach, of course, and Byron Katie, the mother of all coaching, uh, right. I should say, um, you know, Edith Eager. I mean, really a Holocaust survivor. I mean, who has like such critical life lessons. Um, and Jill Bolte-Taylor, who talked about whole brain living and, and her experience. And so if you are not sure about coaching is a great place to start. And I can tell you, when you look at the amount of money, you're going to have a stroke and calm down. I just want to have a stroke. stroke. (laughs) But, But then, but then, you know, this is where the certain perspective comes in that we forget about. And I can tell you from going to employed to private practices that we didn't pay, I never paid attention to money as a resident or as an employed physician, because I got like RVU based or whatever. But I can tell you in private practice is that, you know, when you start looking at it, you know, when you look at the gobbler, that's, you know, a few hundred dollars or, you know, a thousand or so, um, you know, and it takes you 15 minutes and the patient comes to you and say, well, that just took 15 minutes. Why are you going to charge me all that? Well, we know that you're paying for the education, the motivation of the lost sleep, the before, after the working up, the, the fact that not all things are going to be 15 minutes. 
you know, so really, I think it's putting um, a value on something rather than like you're paying for a value of something. And it's the transformation and the experience. Um, mm-hmm. And you can go to the Premier program and you can get the example of all things, or you could try other things too, or you can even try to do it yourself. Um, but yeah. certainly, you know, if you're not sure where to go, that is the easiest place to get the best variety for you to decide what to go next. And then I know that a lot of those coaches that you hire for the one-on-one can become one-on-one coaches. So it's a really great place to, um, you know, all in one place, uh, experience several different kinds of coaches, uh, different styles, um, and then decide for yourself. And so it, it just like anything, the, we pay for convenience and we pay for quality and we pay for, you know, uh, our, our time is short. And so, you know, for someone who is not familiar with it and checks out the program, you know, to not hesitate because of that, because what you're paying Mm -hmm. for is the value and the convenience um, and the really what you're going to get out of it. So, um, and the excellence, I would say, I mean, we, we evaluate for this. (laughs) No, 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 no. So we evaluate all of our coaches and we have the volume to be able to like have you know, good data on our program. And we have significant data that we, you know, submit to medical journals. And so it's just the quality is certainly there. And in terms of the investment, like I, you know, my friends and colleagues these days are interested in ROI and investment and cash on cash and all of these things. And like, where's the best place to invest your money? And there's no doubt that people who tend to go through a program like this, because we talked about how physicians become empowered and they think they're worth more and they know their value and all of that, so many people that even just because we also bring in charting coaches, right? We bring in parenting coaches, we bring in people who for the large group sessions who have certain areas of expertise. And so the charting people and other people that teach you about efficiencies in all different ways in your sessions, if you want to work on that, so many people who've been through my program say their RVUs go way up and they stop charting at night because they're just focused on their stop people pleasing they start focusing on what's necessary and then focusing on giving whatever extra time they want, but don't feel obligated to, right? And then they just learn how to bill efficiently. Not that we ever teach billing ever, but we teach efficiency and we teach to stop people pleasing. And we talk about how that shows up in an office or a hospital from people who work in offices and hospitals, right? And then they go to their employers if they're employed and they're like, listen, here's the MGMA data you know, or listen, I want this or that changed. And so I think people, it's not uncommon at all for people to get way more than they invested back very quickly. Um, And even those who don't, if they don't want to um, say they're transitioning out of medicine or something, well, even then they can certainly, because they become an expert witness or they, you know, they learn how to, um, that their skills and the foundation that makes you a physician are invaluable in basically every space, you know, there's, I mean, even your kid's school, they need someone for like the soccer game or whatever. So um, anyway, we, we all invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in our brain because why do we do that? A, we want to heal and it's our passion and our heart. And B, we, we literally have multi-million dollar brains because that's just the course of your career. Even if you're a primary care doctor, like I was, and you know, at the very end of my career, if you get up to like the twos, right? Okay, so that's a million every five years. So we all have multi-million dollar brains and what would you um, invest in that brain? You've already invested a lot more than you would ever touch with any coach. So um, it's it's been the most valuable thing certainly that I've ever done. And I, I spent my whole life running a free clinic 
and educating students, which was always incredibly meaningful. And through some interesting paradox, this almost seems, I mean, can it be more meaningful? Could I say that? Maybe I should say, I was gonna say that, should I say equally, but it almost feels, it's probably because I'm in it right now, like supporting physicians who are in distress or watching them make their dreams come true. And then when we talk about that ripple effect, of when they make their dream come true, just how quickly, because it's not like medical school and residency where there's like a seven, eight, nine, ten year turnaround before the next generation comes up. That might be what I'm noticing in my brain is because when I would advise something, someone and give them a white coat, right? It would be years later before they could really make any significant impact in the medical system. <laughs> and now if I coach someone within six months, they can already had a huge change where they live, right? So anyway, it's just interesting how, how quickly we can change and actually implement any types of changes that we're interested in. People want very different kinds of changes, but as you know, you've implemented changes in your life and it's just fascinating how, cause our brain has to constrict all options, right? It can't take in all data at all times yeah. or we'd be totally overwhelmed. And so once you have this awareness of, of the choices that are available to you, it's, fascinating. Yeah, and one thing that was interesting is that, you know, I, I joined the program at, out of curiosity and also to get, you know, multiple different experiences because I had been coaching for over a year by that time. So I already kind of knew a lot about coaching, but I was curious about, you know, like a different variety and to, to become a better coach. And what was interesting mm. is you know, our brain always has some idea of what it wants. And, you know, mm. I went in with one intention and I walked out with something different. Yes. That and, happens all the time. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the thing is, and the people that are now looking at coaching seriously know that there's something that they want to change, but they're just not sure how to do it. And it's typically yeah. the thoughts, the culture, the, the constraint that we have, the, the, all the things we're telling us we should do or shouldn't do. Um, and I think that what a, a coaching journey does is that it frees you to allow yourself to do what you always wanted to do. And it's, it goes back to what you were saying before. We know what we want. I mean, we, we really do. Um, I think part of that is that we let go mm -hmm. of, at least for me, this is what I am observing and observing myself is we let go more and more and more of what other people think of us, right? Because we know that when you think about the brain, right. And you think about their brain, their brain really is the sum of their entire life history, everything that brought them up, all the cultures and background and experiences and shame and joy and all of these things and whatever everything that they have is all about them. So their beliefs about you are so tainted through the glasses through which they see the whole world. And it's so much more about them than it is about you. Then you can free yourself to be like, well, how do I want to see the world? How do I want to see my life? How, what glasses do I want to wear? You know, and it just, I, it really helps decrease and decrease and decrease until then. I mean, you're not, it's not like you're antisocial or have some kind of disorder or borderline, but you really can get to where other people's, your worry about other people's opinion of you just isn't what helps you make decisions, right? You're like, I'm going to make what's best for me and my family. Mm -hmm. And this is what we're going to do. And letting go that you can have any influence on them too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I still like to believe I can. I'm like, feelings are contagious, mere neurons, <laughs> but I mean, with enthusiasm and contagion and things like that, we can have some influence on others for sure. But 
you know, they are who they are. And we've all done that, tried to change people, tried to change bosses, tried to change spouses. And, you know, they get to choose. Human beings have free will. And so do we, right? I mean, we're human, so that let them have their free will and we're going to use ours and we're going to use it to make the rest of this life amazing with what we've already done being the foundation upon which we build anything else. Right. And yeah. you know, I think it's, it's a really fantastic way to, to just kind of uh, round out how important coaching can be for someone and, you know, providing some uh, ways to do so again, searching for a coach, you, you could try them out, but, you know, give them the value that they, uh, that they deserve. A, a well-formed program is a great way to, to be the most efficient and get all of your money's worth. There's, you know, I regret none of it. In fact, I think it was more than worth it. Um, and then, um, I also wanted to kind of segue into a project that I know that's near and dear to your heart, um, and is to mine too. Um, after uh, after I finished college, I was in graduate school for a little while um, as a cell biology and anatomy major. So, mm. of course, you know, HeLa cells were something that I was familiar with. So, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, the, the project that you have and all the progress that you've made? Um, for the Henrietta Lacks Foundation? Yeah, I would be, I would love if anyone who's listening this far, who's made it this far into our conversation would um, be listening and be curious about Henrietta Lacks, who, and, and many of us would know her story. Many surprisingly don't. Um, so HeLa Cells, as you mentioned, H-E and L-A were for Henrietta Lacks. And I too did research before medical school on HeLa Cells. And I had no idea that at that point, which was like 95, 97, I had no idea that was a human being at all. And then when we built our new medical school building, I got a corner office, beautiful office. And, you know, there was a beautiful painting or art piece outside my office, one giant one that was made to match the color of my office. So I was the yellow community director, so it was yellow. <laughs> And, um, and it said just underneath, it just said HeLa cells, right? This big piece of art. And at that point I had become aware of, you know, that there was Henry Lax and that she was a black woman who lived in the fifties and um, they were her cells and, you know, it was just some story about it. And then over the course of time, I learned more. Um, it's a book by Rebecca Sloot. It's a movie that has Oprah Winfrey in it that tells the story. And so in my program, as you said, in my coaching program, which again, we try to be like incredibly comprehensive um, in, ter in terms of bringing in neuroscience leaders and coaching thought leaders. And I think also a family that, because we believe very much in racial and social justice and in the history of medicine. So we brought in a really historic family. So we brought um, the family of Henrietta Lacks. So it was her great granddaughter. And then, um, someone who was from an older generation as well, who was, you know, living at the time that, that Henrietta was living. And it was incredibly fascinating and um, infuriating and vulnerable. And just listening to these real human beings talk about what Henrietta went through, what their family went through after, how they had no idea that anything had happened for a long, long, long time. They had heard maybe some rumors in the 70s and some researchers wanted to take their blood, but they didn't really know exactly why. And then not really till Rebecca Skloot, the author started working with Deborah and the family, did they go on this venture to find out the real truth. And so they spoke the story 
uh, to us, to women physicians, you know, there's about a hundred physicians in the program at that time. And they spoke with us about, well, you can see why they might not tell people because she was a black woman and they took her cells to make polio vaccines. And if people at that time before the civil rights knew that polio was from a black woman's cells, would they have even taken them? Right. And, oh, it just breaks your heart to hear family members talk about that. And then they just talk about their lives and they're so proud of her and her contribution because there is no human on the planet that has not been affected by her. Every single one of us has, every one of us. We don't have polio, right? We don't have, we have HPV shots now. We, I mean, we didn't have when I was growing up, but so many advances. There's like a hundred thousand papers published with her name. There's three Nobel prizes. Oh, I don't know why I get emotional about some things as you know this about me. Um, but so her, her great-granddaughter who actually people can look up. I know I'm telling the story longer than I need to, but they can look her up. She spoke at the World Health Organization recently when they gave an award to the family to recognize uh, Henrietta's contribution to society and the world. Um, they, she, her name is Victoria and she spoke and she is a nurse and she's a black nurse, obviously, um, who works with patients who have understandably um, reservations about medical research, about the medical system, about how they'll be treated. And she, even though this was done to her family, advocates for them to get the care that they need and to trust. <sighs> so she said she was burdened by her student loan debt and her family hadn't had any sort of like financial recognition or reparation. So we just said, we'll pay off your debt in that moment because it was so like, un again, Nobel prizes and yeah. pharmaceutical companies with who even knows how much money. And so there's no, there's, there's um, currently now, since then there's, um, there is some action pending by some members to try to do something with some company. But the thing is nothing has been done in all this time. And there are no guarantees that anything will ever be done. And so we worked with the family afterwards and the author and the people in charge of the nonprofit for the family. And we went back and forth for a series of weeks to months about how we as a group of women physicians who, as I've told you, are, I believe are very, very powerful, right? Mm -hmm. We are connected to so many universities, to so many people, to so many leaders. What could we do that could be the most helpful? And, you know, they could speak at different places they could you know have different platforms they what what did they want because it's like a needs assessment in a way right you don't tell someone this is what you need you ask them what they want and their family's request was to just get back to zero with their student loan debt they want to get to have no debt <sighs> so this i'm sorry i'm on my last sentence I'm, very briefly i'll say um I just want to mention, like, to me, it, why is it bring up all these emotions? But like, I think of all the universities they went to, every university they went to had their grandparents' cells, like, right there. And they're paying the debt, right? Like, anyway, so, anyway, so we're raising money is the bottom line. <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt. So we're raising money. We have already raised $271,000, which is amazing. And we have a ways to go. We have a bit more than that to go. And so every single person, I'm sure you put a link in the show notes, um, every single person who donates even a dollar 
gets to leave a note for the family and I know that the family reads it. And I know that it touches their heart that we're doing this. And I know we're not gonna stop till we're done. And I mean, just to, to briefly summarize this, um, <laughs> you have to cut all that out. <laughs> no, 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 just to say, like, no, but just to put it in perspective, just for a minute there, because I know the story. So, you know, yeah. and, and the, the most important thing, just the take home message is, is that Henry Nalax in the 1950s was um, research when ethics were not all as they are today. Um, this was the 1950s. And all, you know, her family has gone along um, not enjoying the benefits of all that she has provided to the, the medical field. And women physicians with your directorship have provided $271,000 for the education of Henrietta Lack's family. So medicine paying back the family of someone who we have benefited greatly from and what a tremendous gift and an honor um, that it is that you are offering um, this family who it's a long time coming. And of course the, the link um, for donation will be in the show notes too. And I just encourage anyone for a small amount or a large amount or, or whatever to do so just to honor someone um, who has provided so much in the medical field that a lot of people didn't even realize how much that she has contributed. Um, and, you know, quite honestly was not asked to do so. Um, no. And no so I think that we really just don't have any idea of the, the, what she had to have gone through in the fifties. And so, but we're starting to know um, with Roberta's Clues work um, and I've read the book as well. And so I think that, that we do owe it to that family to do something um, and doing it from the goodness of our heart, I think is much more poignant and, and it says a lot um, to get yeah. that. So I do encourage everyone to do so because I mean, what you have already done is like pretty phenomenal um, as grassroots efforts of just mm. simple things to raise that much money for a family. So thank you so much for all that you've done. Thank you. And that, you know, some of, some people might have matching funds through their institution, right? Or there may be ways to amplify what you're doing with your kids or with your, you know, college age kids or any, any kind of outreach like that. And we are going to have an event with Rebecca Sklute coming um, so that people can join because we really, really want to finish this. And, um, you know, I gave the largest donation of my life and several other physicians did too. And What's also heartwarming in addition to that small number of large donations is there's a huge number of like five and 10 and $20. Mm-hmm. So beautiful, right? From so many people right. that there's just like from so many walks of life, mm-hmm. right? It's not just physicians. And the, I'm of course not leaving it alone. I have two other women physicians who were on the call that day and were also equally moved and, or so moved, I should say, and are black women physicians. And so are, um, helping to lead certainly um, because we always want to be centering Henrietta in this and her family in this and certainly not ourselves, but it's been a fascinating journey. Right. And it's, it's just um, honoring all the people that are contributing to medicine that we don't see now that we have seen, yeah. how can you unsee that? <laughs> yeah, you can't. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, uh, Dr. Smith, this has been such a great uh, conversation. And I think that, you know, it's going to open up a lot of people's eyes who aren't aware of, you know, what a uh, physician coach is. And I think that your program is a fantastic place to start. We'll, of course, put the um, the link to that as well. And when does this program start? And how, how long is Oh, it? you better get this podcast up <laughs> quickly. So as I said, I spent my life as a medical educator. So we had quarterly programs. And so I, I run my program much like I ran my um, other, you know, clerkship director type of thing. So we bring in a cohort and we are starting in one week where our orientation initial day is scheduled to be February 20th, mm-hmm. February 20th, people. I always, every single time that we have it, have some people who come in during orientation week. So if someone is listening to this a tiny bit after February 20th, you can sneak on in. Um, but try and be there for orientation if you can. And then, um, you know, you never really know what's when the next one will be, but it's possible that we would do another one for a summer. But anybody who's actually has like the inkling that they might want to do this. I think one of the most common things you probably heard people say this at the end, when we do the reflection, I, I have no idea what they're going to say. And very commonly it comes up. I only wish I'd done this sooner for empowering women physicians, which can involve men too. There's men in the program as well. I highly encourage you to do it. Having gone through myself and she does not paying me to say this, I a hundred percent encourage people to do this. It really will change a lot in, in your life. And also do consider donating at least a little bit to the Henrietta Lacks Foundation. You know, we as uh, physicians in the medical field have benefited so much and doing such even a small token um, is going to mean a lot. So I'll put those in the show notes. And thank you again, Dr. Smith, for your time. Thank you so much. It was so much fun to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the show and share it with fellow surgeons. Let's show each other what is possible. You can find more information at bosssurgery.com and the Boss Business of Surgery Series Facebook group. Until next time.